0: Open your Bibles with me this evening to Psalm chapter, or excuse me, to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, once more. This morning we focused in on verse one through 17. This evening, we'll look at verse 18 through 30. Simply a reminder for you. these are the words of Christ preparing His disciples for his death. Christ is not saying these words lightly. Certainly, he never spoke a light word. But these words, especially, we should consider very carefully because they are what we might call Christ's uh, preparation for his disciples. So we read then from verse 18 through 20, or excuse me, 18 through 30 of John chapter 13. Hear the word of the Lord. I am not speaking. Of all of you, I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this evening examining the treachery of one Judas Iscariot. Yet we pray, Lord, that you would teach us through this passage to see the care of Christ for poor, treacherous sinners such as us. We pray that you would teach us through this passage to not look To anything but to Christ for salvation. We pray that you would teach us through this passage that there, but for the grace of God, go we. That, but for the work of Christ in our hearts, we too would be Judas Iscariot. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, traitors are among the most despised of all people. Those who betray their friends, those who take someone whom they supposedly love and they turn their back on them, these people are among the most despised of all people. Even today, we have uh, memories through the ranks of history of famous traitors we could list off a few of them brutus cassius who helped to murder julius caesar we could speak of benedict arnold general in the civil or in the revolutionary war or commander in the revolutionary war and these names are names of people who even today hundreds of years later have a black mark upon them if you call someone a brutus That's a pretty horrible insult. If you say, you're a Benedict Arnold, that's pretty terrible. Even today, names like this are hated. Yet even the names that we don't know still demonstrate how despised traitors are. Allow me to give you one example of a traitor that's very little known today. His name was Marino Faliero. He was one of the leaders of Venice in the 13th century. And he was placed in charge over the city of Venice, and it was his task for a year to take care of the city of Venice. But he betrayed the city. He sought to take over the city and become its king. He was caught, tried, pled guilty, and executed. And when they executed him, they condemned him not only to death, but a death of memory. So even today, if you walk through the palace of these rulers of Venice, there's a room where you can see the portrait of every main ruler of Venice for hundreds of years. And you go through and you'll see Portrait after portrait after portrait, and you get to the portrait of Marino Faliero, and it's completely blank. It is a black portrait, and written on it are the words Here is the portrait of Marino Faliero, executed for his crimes. And for hundreds of years, that was the only place you would see his name. In official documents, they would blot out his name rather than speak of him. And here we come this evening to the greatest traitor of all. Calling someone a Brutus or a Benedict Arnold may be bad, but calling someone a Judas is usually the end of a friendship. Calling someone a Judas is considered perhaps one of the worst insults you could give someone. Even unbelievers consider this to be an awful Insult to them. Jesus has just washed the feet of his disciples. He's just shown his care. And now he speaks to them of this traitor. Great traitor among their midst. Far worse than any other. Not only betraying someone who we could call his friend. Betraying the King of Kings. The Lord of Lords the ruler of all creation, the Savior of His own. But brothers and sisters, what we find when we arrive at this passage is very different from what we might expect. Jesus does not treat this traitor in the way He deserves, at least not in this moment. We don't see Him instantly throwing Judas out. Instead we see care from Christ. Let's examine then tonight Judas' betrayal and how Christ speaks of his betrayal. We begin in verse eighteen through twenty-one by seeing that Judas's deception was not hidden. Judas's deception was not hidden. Long before our passage this evening, friends, Jesus had already begun to hint that there was someone in their group who did not belong. Even fairly early on in Jesus' ministry, in John chapter 6, Jesus says, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? So the disciples should have known. But now Jesus wants to prepare these disciples for his death. Again, he wants them to be fully aware of his coming death, of what's about to take place. As we saw this morning, he begins to draw them forward and to say, leave your petty squabbles behind. Look as to what's coming up ahead. He's just finished washing their feet. He's told them that they are clean. and But in verse 10 and 11, we see that he says that not all of the disciples are clean, hinting at this deception, this Judas that was among them. He says in verse 18 through 21 all the more clearly, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Brothers and sisters, it's very probable that Judas believed his deception was hidden from Jesus and from the other disciples. A few days before the events of this chapter, Judas had slipped out into the night. He had gone to the Jewish leaders to betray Jesus. He says, "'What will you give me to betray Jesus?' Matthew describes it this way in Matthew chapter 26. He says, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. So from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Judas took the proper precautions, we might say. He had told No one but Jesus' enemies. He was sure, certainly, that he had hidden his sin well. That Jesus and the other disciples were none the wiser. He had every expectation that he would get away with his sin. That he could betray Jesus without a hitch. But congregation, despite this, Jesus shows us here that Judas's deception was not hidden. In the span of a few verses, Jesus gives not one, not two, but three separate declarations that speak of Judas' sin. First, Jesus confirms that Jesus himself knew of Judas' sin. Jesus starts by saying, I don't speak concerning all of you. I know of whom I have chosen. Jesus had chosen certain disciples for salvation, but He knew there was one among them who was not to be saved, foreordained for destruction, one among them who was predestined as a traitor. But beyond this, not only had Judas failed to hide it from Jesus himself, he'd failed even to hide it from prophetic Scripture. Jesus, Judas had not even hid it from Scriptural fulfillment. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 19. The Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate, ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 41, the psalm which we just sang from a few moments ago. This psalm, a thousand years before Judas was born, was written. Judas was not able to hide his sin from God. God knew about the sin of Judas. Judas had believed that he was sneaking around undetected, Yet years before, his actions have been prophesied. Above all these things, Jesus even uses in the third place Judas' attempted deception as proof that he was who he says he was. That's what verse 20 says to us. That when it takes place, you will know that I am he in one swift move friends jesus reveals judas's treachery his deception congregation judas's experience here is the general experience of natural men it's human nature to believe that we can hide our sin When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, their first action was to try and hide from God what they had done. When Cain killed Abel and God questioned him, Cain pretended not to know what they were speaking about. When your children, brothers and sisters, sin against you, parents, what is often the first thing that they do? So often their first impulse is to try and hide the sin, to say, surely my parents won't find out. There are times, certainly, when parents don't find out about the sins of their children, but the same is not true with God. Friends, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, God knows your sin. Your treachery is not hidden from Him. Judas believed he had hidden his treachery from Christ, but Christ knew all along what was taking place. And the same is true for you. Perhaps we may acknowledge outwardly that God can see what we're up to, but in the depths of our heart, when we are in the depths of our sin, we have a tendency to believe or to try and convince ourselves God isn't aware of it. Psalm 10 puts it this way, He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. Is this true for you, brothers and sisters, boys and girls? Have you convinced yourself that you can hide your sins from God? That God will not call you to account for your sin? Perhaps you have a secret hatred against someone. You never let it show and you think that this hatred is a complete secret. Perhaps you've stolen from your job and no one's called you to account for it. Perhaps your heart is full of lust. And in these things you try and convince yourself that no one knows. Your family doesn't know. Your coworkers don't know. Your husband or your wife doesn't know. Your parents don't know. Your elders don't know about your sin. And all that may be true, friends, but God knows. Do not be deceived. God is the one who searches hearts and minds. You cannot escape his notice long before Judas was born. Jesus knew of Judas's hidden sin. In the second place, brothers and sisters, Judas' deception was not distant. Judas's deception was not distant, and this we see in verse 22 through 26. To put it another way, Judas was not a distant deceiver. Look with me there at verse 22 through 26. Excuse me, 21 through 26. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Congregation, it's not as if Judas barely knew Jesus. It's not as if Judas was a stranger from afar or a casual acquaintance that Jesus had. In fact, he was as close to Jesus as he could possibly be. Jesus had many disciples during his life. At one point, teaching before 5,000 people not counting women and children. Acts mentions 120 who were especially devoted to him. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out 70 who were special disciples with the task of proclaiming Jesus' name and casting out demons. Judas was not one of these 5,000 simply. He was not simply one of the 120 special disciples. He was not part of the 70. Simply, Judas was one of Jesus' twelve most trusted disciples. Closest to Jesus. A man who lived with Jesus for around three years. Traveled with Jesus. Listened to Jesus every word preached in Jesus' name. Cast out demons. At least as far as the text shows us in the name of Jesus. Every external indication, is that Judas is among Jesus' most trusted disciples. To make matters even stronger, Judas was one of, well, he was the disciple who took care of the finances of the Twelve. Certainly, therefore, at least from an external viewpoint, He was among the most trusted of the disciples. He was the one who had the task of taking care of their money, making sure that they had their needs met. It seems almost as though Jesus takes Judas under his wing. This man whom he knew would betray him, has him right next to him. And when we arrive at the Lord's Supper, When we arrive at this this dinner here, the honor and the trust that Jesus places upon Judas is seemingly increased tenfold. This is something we don't necessarily notice when we read through the text with our modern understanding. To us, we read about this meal taking place and nothing immediately jumps out. But to the first century reader, this would have been very striking to them. In Jesus' day, the master of the feast would put two people at either side of him, one to his right, one to his left. These people were to be considered the people of highest honor at the dinner. To your right, you would have the person of the highest honor. To the left, the person of the second highest honor. And as you went around the table, then the honor would seemingly decrease. And the passage speaks to us of John laying on Jesus' chest, meaning that in all likelihood, the way they ate, John was at Jesus' right hand. They laid on their sides to eat. Now I ask you, brothers and sisters, Jesus dips a morsel of bread, or a morsel of food, and he gives it to Judas Iscariot. Where was Judas Iscariot? If Jesus could reach out and, and give the bread to him. This isn't a modern table where you're simply sitting across from someone. This is a table where people are in a line and in usually the shape of a U. Judas could only have been either at Jesus' left, the highest place of honor, or very close to it. Judas was honored, given every measure of trust. Second of all, and most important, more importantly for this passage, in Jesus' day, when the host of the feast wished especially to honor a person, they would give a choice piece of food to this person. They would say, here, take this. One commentator, James Montgomery Boyce, puts it this way. It's a bit of a long uh, passage. I paraphrase it, but it's absolutely worth hearing. James Montgomery Boyce says here this, As the disciples went into the upper room, we know that they were arguing about who should have had the highest place. In this circumstance, the Lord must have said, Judas, I would like you to sit next to me this evening. I would like you to be here where you and I can talk. We're not told what the Lord said to Judas, but I can't imagine that they went through the entire meal without the Lord speaking graciously to him, showing his love in every gesture, in every inflection of his voice. Furthermore, the giving of the piece of food was an honor, and to receive it was a pledge of loyalty. At this point in the meal, in spite of the fact that Jesus had both both loved and honored him, Judas hardened his heart and received the food, saying in effect, Thank you, Master. I am yours. He lied. All this to say, congregation, even though Jesus knew who this betrayer was, he gave Judas every opportunity, every chance to repent of his sin, every possible blessing, Until the last moment, he showed kindness and love to him who was destined for hell. Honored Judas, even at this final meal. Congregation, consider how close Judas was to Jesus and what that means for us. Jesus was fully aware of the sin of Judas. But in this final supper, every indication is that he was kind to him. Do you see the love of Christ here, brothers and sisters? Christ was never deceived by Judas. But nonetheless, He showed kindness to such a one as Judas Iscariot. Friends, what about us? I'm going to say something now which may be very striking or even scandalous to you. You are not different, not very different, from Judas. I am not very different from Judas. I speak for a moment to those of you especially who are in Christ. Consider the grace you've received from Him. How much He's done for you. That Christ would come to the earth for you. That He would live a life of a humble servant for you that He would stoop down to death and the death of the cross for your sake. That He is resurrected for you, sits now at the right hand of the Father for you, that this Christ would be so kind and so gracious to us who are in Him. And yet, brothers and sisters, how often do we betray this kindness? How often do we fling ourselves headlong into temptation? When Christ has drawn us to be by Himself, has shown us every kindness, how often do we spit in His face, turn to our sin, backslide, when Christ was so kind to us. If we are different from Judas, brothers and sisters, there's really only one major thing that separates us. And that is not anything we can find in ourselves, but it is of the grace of Christ that there but for the grace of God go I. That by the grace of God, brothers and sisters, we are what we are. If it were not for Christ turning us from our sin, giving us life in Him, we would be as this Judas spitting in the face of Christ. That is, after all, what our betrayal is. When we sin, we are betraying His name. And yet, He would draw us back to Himself. He would say, you are mine. I will not let you go. You see here then, congregation, that yes, Judas was a horrible traitor. For the grace of God, we would be the same. We turn then to the final point. Judas's deception was not understood. Judas's deception was not understood. Look with me at verse 27 through 30. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus Excuse me. Was telling him buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Congregation, when Jesus had, when Judas had received this piece of food, when he had proclaimed to the other disciples by taking this bread, I am yours. He went out fully committed to his betrayal into the night. But what's absolutely remarkable about this passage is the response of the disciples. Even after all that had taken place, the disciples were completely clueless. They somehow missed the entire point of what was being said. It wasn't until later that they could fully understand what was taking place. They had been outright told that someone would betray him. They had been pointed to Judas, and they still didn't understand. In verse 18, Jesus openly talks about this traitor. All the disciples had heard it. In verse 26, he literally dips the bread into uh, the food and gives it to Judas doing exactly what Psalm 41 speaks of, that the person who shared bread with me has lifted his heel against me. All of the disciples should have known. But even after what Christ had told them, they couldn't quite come to grips with the fact that someone would betray Him. So they explained what Jesus was doing and what Judas was doing with with positive interpretations. It says here that, that some of them you know, supposed that he was going out to get some more food for the rest of the feast that was to take place later in the week. Some believe that he was going out to give money for the poor. It's only later that the disciples finally understand Judas' true intentions. Congregation consider the irony of what these disciples believed. They believed that Judas had good intentions when he left. They believed He was going out to help others. In the psalm that Jesus quoted about Himself, it begins with, Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. And the disciples may have even thought similar thoughts about this Judas. Wow, look at this great guy going out to help the poor. Judas left the upper room not considering the poor, but looking to destroy his Lord. Not leaving to help Jesus, but to destroy Him. Not going to spend money, but to obtain it by betraying Him. The passage concludes with Judas leaving behind the disciples, walking away from his Savior, or from who should have been his Savior. Finally, completely giving his heart to the wickedness which was his his from the beginning, John ends with these simple words, and it was night. John is seeking to do more here, brothers and sisters, than simply speak of the time of evening that it was. He wishes here to show us that when Judas left the presence of Christ, he didn't step off to do his own thing rather he stepped off into darkness he left the light of the world for the night he turned away from the sun of glory to walk into deepest shadow congregation Judas has been shown every opportunity every grace every kindness for three years but in the end as he was predestined to do in the hardness of his heart and his wickedness. He rejected the light in favor of the darkness. As John chapter 1 says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it. There are two things to learn from this, brothers and sisters. First of all, this passage should teach us that Proximity to the church of God is no final indicator of salvation. You may be a member of this church. You may even be an upstanding member. You may be one of the most highly honored people in your church and thought of, well, you could be an elder or a deacon or a pastor, but none of this is a guarantee of your salvation. Judas was one of the twelve. Had you asked any of the disciples in this evening, as is clear from these final verses, they would have told you, yeah, Judas, he's a great guy. They would have spoken highly of his financial ability. They would have spoken highly of the fact that he was with Jesus for three years. They were so convinced, in fact, that even when Jesus spoke plainly to them, they didn't understand And yet our passage concludes with Judas stepping out into the night. Brothers and sisters, don't allow your place in this church to convince you that God is pleased with you. Don't allow the fact that you come to church every Sunday or twice a Sunday to convince you that somehow you're doing okay. Do not allow the proximity to the church to convince you that everything is right with your heart. Your salvation can only be found in Christ. As we saw in this morning, with Christ washing His disciples, and with the blood and the, uh, the body of Christ broken for us, there is only to be found salvation in Him. Judas was not saved because he was a member of the twelve you will not be saved simply by being a member of the church. Though the church is a great blessing, though it is a great blessing to belong to the people of God, that, at least externally, that is not what saves you. It is only Christ. And if you are apart from Christ, you will be as Judas in the night. But second of all, I speak here especially to the unbeliever this evening. I don't know your heart. Some of you may not be in Christ. It's very probable Judas here, one of the twelve, was lost. Unbeliever, if, if you are an unbeliever, it is possible that God is showing you grace right now so that you may repent. Christ gave Judas every opportunity to repent. What about you? You may be here now because you have friends here, because you grew up in this church, because it makes you feel good to attend a church and hear the Word of God preached. Whatever the reason, if you are not now saved, friend, the reason you are in this church may very well be that God is giving you an opportunity to repent. There will come a day, however, when there will be no more opportunity. After all of Christ's kindness, still Judas stepped out into darkness. Congregation, this passage, in the end, is not designed simply to show us how evil Judas is, although that's part of the passage. John wishes to proclaim to us the love of Christ for lost sinners such as Judas. He wishes to proclaim to us that Christ cared for even those who were predestined to help. He wishes to proclaim to us through this passage that our every sin is a betrayal against God. And that if it were not for the grace of Christ, we too would be exactly like Judas. So when you read this passage, congregation, when you consider the life of Judas, when you consider the life of traitors, don't think, how dare they betray? Rather say, if it is not for the grace of Jesus Christ, I would be a Brutus. I would be a Benedict Arnold. I would be a Judas Iscariot but grace in Christ. Christ saved me. Amen. Lord God, we pray that you would teach us through the life of Judas Iscariot, this great traitor, that there but for the grace of God go I, that indeed it is only by your work in our hearts that we are not continually betraying you. And indeed, Lord, our every sin is a betrayal against the love and the care of our Savior. We pray then, Lord, that you would teach us to despise sin. Rather than spit in the eye of our Savior, we pray that you would teach us to hate sin, to flee from it, to turn to Christ, to be with him, to so never leave his presence lest we be in the night. We thank you, Lord, that you hold us in your hand. That indeed we cannot, if we are in you, lose our salvation. Yet we pray, Lord, that you would hold us. That you would sustain us. That you would hold us up. For without you, Lord, we would be as this Judas. We thank you, Lord, for your love, drawing us sweetly back to your presence, that even when we fail and when we fall into rebellion against you, that you will not let us be, but that you have loved us and cared for us. We pray, Lord, for these truths to reign in our lives and in our hearts, In Jesus' name.